This is Overnight on ABC Radio. Australia needs 20 to win against South Africa. But we can cross now to Boston, Massachusetts, where Celeste Katz-Marston is with us. Celeste, good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. What do you think of that new Beatles single? It's been everywhere, hasn't it? No, I, I, I feel sort of conflicted about it. I feel like, is it them, but is it not them? Mm, it's not them. It's not <laughs> Um, let's talk politics first, shall we? Uh, and this is the fact that New Hampshire, the New Hampshire primary has taken on this mythic proportion as being the first primary in the season. It's not the first election in the season because the Iowa caucuses, I think, are before it. But if you want to win the presidency, you've got to go to the snows of New Hampshire and shake hands with all sorts of people. And then this very, very white state and a very small state really determines, you know, they say there's three tickets out of uh, New Hampshire. And if, you know, if you aren't in the top three, you don't finish in the top three, you're not going to end up uh, getting the um, the nomination of your party. There have been attempts, have there not, to change New Hampshire's status as first of the nation, haven't they? Yes, very much so. And you're right. New Hampshire is a very small state, and it's had this position for a very long time, for so many elections. And I've gone up there as a reporter many, many times to do exactly what you're saying, stand around in the snow and talk to voters. It didn't make me president, but you get a general sense of what's on people's minds. And New Hampshire, of course, for a lot of reasons, takes this very, very seriously. But there has been a move to say, look, maybe New Hampshire shouldn't have this sort of uh, first place standing in terms of primaries right after the Iowa caucus, which is not a primary. And maybe we should change things up. Maybe we should have other states like South Carolina and Nevada that have a more diverse population, certainly a much bigger population, uh, have a bigger say in, in how this works. And New Hampshire's answer to that is basically no. Yeah. In fact, I think they legislated that no matter what happened, they would always be first. If someone had decided to have a primary on the 1st of January, then New Hampshire would have it on the 31st of December. It kind of goes back a bit to Jimmy Carter. He won the New Hampshire primary and that kind of propelled him to the White House. And since then, it is has become really important, but kind of less so. Joe Biden won South Carolina uh, last time and that was kind of the start of his momentum to winning the White House, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, people do watch the early primaries. People, a lot of people in the media, frankly, watch these early primaries very, very intently. And they try to read some sort of tea leaves out of them. Now, it's not always the case that winning the primary or winning any other state's particular primary, even in the early phases of the campaign, means you're going to win the whole thing. And so some people are saying, well, there's too much focus on it. We should look at a, a bigger way of considering elections. But for this uh, for this particular go, it ends up being a really weird situation because uh, the idea of the Democratic Party was to have South Carolina go earlier this time. New Hampshire wasn't having that. And so now you're in a situation where Joe Biden's name isn't going to be on the ballot in New Hampshire. He deliberately missed the deadline oh. uh, to file his candidacy uh, for president oh. in New Hampshire. So I guess people can write him in if they want to. But it, it's it's definitely a weird situation. Yeah. I mean, what they could do, of course, is move up states like South Carolina to a week after New Hampshire, that then, because quite often, as I say, there are three tickets out of New Hampshire. Uh, you know, the, the giving a state like South Carolina or a more diverse state 
you know, less than a week afterwards or a week afterwards would, you know, bump up their importance. Yeah, look, I mean, everybody wants to contend to be first for a lot of reasons to have this sort of uh, this sort of name where you're the one who's uh, creating the momentum, where the presidential candidates are going to spend more time talking to more people and maybe even making more promises in your state. And then just again, as somebody who has gone up to states like Iowa, New Hampshire, also South Carolina, many times, um, these primaries are big, big business. You cannot imagine the hordes of media, people like me going in, renting cars, staying in yeah, hotels, buying dinner. food, you know, shopping at, at local places, I'm spending wild amounts of money and not just individual reporters, but networks. I mean, yes. people start blocking out New Hampshire hotel rooms years in advance. I know it's the biggest thing that can. happens to it's every four years. Someone pays attention to New Hampshire. The rest of the time, no one cares about them, I hate to say. It's a beautiful state. <laughs> well, you know, they do. They have nice leaves and so on. It's for tourism, for uh, hiking and so on. I mean, it's a charming state for a lot of reasons. I've been going there since I was a, a very young child, actually, with my family. But some people are just saying, look, New Hampshire's really small. It's really white. It doesn't say anything, or at least it, it, does, it says about as much about America as Iowa does. Again, relatively small state, very white, um, traditionally very agricultural, and maybe just times have changed. Maybe we need to sort of have a different pace setter, yeah. if you want to call it that, in our presidential politics than the ones we've had for 100 years. What about but Oklahoma? Hampshire. What about making Oklahoma very early? How do you think people would feel about that? What's happening in Oklahoma these days? I, as, as somebody who is not a particular Oklahoma expert, although I will say that more people perhaps are paying attention to Oklahoma because uh, we've had a lot more interest in and a lot more exposition of things like the uh, uh, the race riots there, uh, you know, in Tulsa in yeah. particular. There was a TV show. I don't know if you guys caught it in Australia, but there was a, a, a remake of sort of the Watchmen series oh, of okay. uh, graphic novels. And a lot of that focused on what had happened in, in Tulsa. Well, I'll just but say I, in the new Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, what is it? Flowers of the Killer Moon or Killers of the Flower Moon. They go, yeah. uh, De Niro is in a movie theatre watching a newsreel about the Tulsa riots. Yeah, so I don't know if people are, are, are would uniformly get behind moving Oklahoma to the top of the primary ladder, but look, these things are super hard for people to uh, to break with when it comes to the tradition. And again, there is a sort of a financial component. There's yes. a notoriety component. But it's very prestigious. Yes, but what are Oklahoma values? That's what I want to know about, Celeste. Well, actually, we funny you mentioned it because we did have a discussion of Oklahoma values uh, in uh, the uh, United States Congress very recently. And uh, I, I didn't know that they were quite this way, but that was just one guy's opinion of what mm. constitutes Oklahoma values. And those Oklahoma values involve picking fights with people. Is that right? Yeah, it was it was very interesting. It was sort of almost starting a fist fight or attempting to start a fist fight. The uh, the gentleman from Oklahoma uh, 
threatening to beat up the head of the Teamsters at a formal congressional hearing. And they started, uh, it wasn't like terribly foul language, but it was basically like, get your butt up. You get your butt up. Uh, you want to go right now, that kind of thing. And then Bernie Sanders had to be the adult in the room and tell people to, to knock it off. So this is uh, the Republican senator who has the wonderful first name of Mark Wayne. That's his full name, Mark Wayne Mullen. And he offered to fight a union leader. Now, if you're going to pick on a union leader, I wouldn't pick on the leader of the Teamsters Union, right? That is a guy that could probably very easily beat me up. So you've got to be pretty uh, brave or stupid to pick on the uh, head of the Teamsters Union. Yeah, well, actually, interestingly enough, the guy who sort of started this situation, and he was responding to uh, a tweet, I think, from the the head of the Teamsters who told him to quit the tough guy act and hmm. that it sort of spiraled from there. But in fact, the the lawmaker who made these comments is a former professional mixed martial arts oh, fighter. Oh, okay. Fair enough then. Uh, anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, let's move on to something far more serious, perhaps. And that is, you know, what has happened in Gaza has spilled over to the rest of the world, obviously. And the worst thing about it, despite the fact that there have been terrible things that are happening in Gaza and Israel, is this, I mean, anti-Semitism is always very, very close to the surface. And it, this gives people the right or excuse, they think, to say anti-Semitic things. We've had some appalling things happen in Australia as well. And it's even reached all the way to Harvard University. Right. As you say, this is something that has been a very big deal on campus. But at Harvard, uh, it's been very out there. Harvard obviously has a lot of a lot of notoriety itself. People look to it for a lot of different reasons. So when this conflict first arose and we started seeing a lot more than even the usual demonstrations and protests and commentary on campus, uh, there were people who criticized Harvard for being too slow, much too slow to react to what they saw as very hostile, negative rhetoric and even uh, mistreatment and, and abuse of, of Jewish kids or kids who were pro-Israel, because yeah. those, those might not be the same thing. I should no, point that right. out. Not exactly. all Jews are, are in support of Israel and, and so on, and not all non-Jews are against it. Exactly. But um, so anyway, the latest the latest uh, chapter in this saga is that the um, – uh, the president of Harvard University, uh, a woman named Claudine Gay, sent out a letter explaining basically what uh, the, this position of the university being very uh, strongly against anti-Semitism and, and mistreatment of of Jewish students and a bunch of about 100, in fact, uh, Harvard professors wrote back uh, that this was a going to have a chilling effect on free speech, and also that the university appeared to be unduly influenced by donors threatening to pull their money out of the university uh, if if Harvard didn't shape up when it came to anti-Semitism. So it's sort of a, a classic academic argument about what you can say and not say, but at the same time, the university is in a bad position because it certainly doesn't want to present itself to the world or to the donor community or to the alumni community as not protecting the safety and well-being of of, of Jewish students or people who are pro-Israel. And you are seeing this versions of this on a lot of different campuses right now, including um, 
you know, people being very concerned about anti-Semitism, kids uh, removing physical uh, indications of their faith, like not wearing a Star of David necklace, not wearing a yarmulke, uh, being afraid to attend certain events, or even being bullied in classrooms, including by their own teachers. Mm. So this is, you know, a very serious thing. At the same time, groups like, uh, you know, Students for uh, Palestinian Rights, uh, you know, groups similar to that are being quieted down or even pushed off campus, are being sort of dechartered from being able to formally operate on campuses because they're being accused of of uh, peddling hate, essentially. You know, we don't need this sort of stuff, but it happens from well, it happens all the time. But I mean, do we need a reminder to know that this feeling is there in society that people pretend if it's not happening they pretend it's not there but then it does happen and we know that it's there that's the problem and like there's a terrible balance to have to make with free speech and donor rights and all that sort of stuff but it just this whole thing has been a sickening thing to actually to, to live through quite frankly because some of the things that you hear from leaders as well one in particular, you think, you know, I thought we moved on from that, but obviously that's not the case. Yeah, and, you know, there's there's a big difference between people peacefully demonstrating, even in huge, huge yeah, numbers, and sure. we've seen enormous uh, pro-Palestinian rights rallies in the United States. There's a big difference between that and people saying things like, Hitler should have finished the job, oh. you know, and I have a, you know, as you know, I've have a radio program in New York still that I do. And I read on the air a letter that I received from a reader because of my last name. Mm. And it ended up with the cheerful hope that people like me would end up back in the oven. <sighs> you know, that's not a normal way to behave. That is not a serious political discourse. That's creepy. That's, uh, you know, intended Godless. to frighten people and silence people. That's very different than going to a rally or writing a letter or making a donation in favor of uh, the people of Gaza or yeah, exactly. uh, making a donation in favor of the people of Israel. Can we finish on a, I would say brighter note, but this is a bizarre one, because we, yeah. I mean, when you take off in a plane, you don't know what's in the hold, what's there. You think, oh, yeah, it's your luggage. But there are animals there, are dogs, cats, monkeys. Anyone who's seen the musical Come From Away know they had to go and rescue all the animals when the planes landed in Gander. I don't know. Would you expect a horse to be there? I mean, I don't want to sit next to someone who's airsick, let alone a horse. <laughs> Yeah, well, this this horse apparently didn't want to be on that plane either, or it was at least not excited about the accommodation. So we did have this situation where a plane had to dump like 20 tons of fuel off the coast of Massachusetts and turn around and go back to uh, go back to New York because a horse got loose in the hole. They're sort of running around and there's actual like transcripts of the pilot saying, okay, well, we have this horse running around in the hold. We're a cargo plane. We can't get him to go back in the stall. So we're not having trouble flying, but we're going to try this again. <laughs> we're going to start over. Unbelievable. Absolutely extraordinary. Uh I, I yeah, anyway, I mean, the, the, when the horses fly around, usually, you know, if they're going to race meetings and that sort of stuff, they have their own planes, the cargo planes, special cargo planes that they fly on. But I, you know, I now I'm going to have to, you know, in the old days they said smoking or non-smoking. Well, they don't do that now. They've got to ask horse or no horse uh, on my plane. I'd like to know. Celeste, we'll have uh, more time to chat next time, I am sure. But I hope you're okay, and uh, I hope we uh, get the chance to talk in very soon.
Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Celeste Katz-Marston in Boston. We should call her Celeste Katz-Boston.